Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 23. For some reason, for most of my years on the planet, small things that were simple accomplishments for others frequently seemed difficult for me. When I was 15, I wanted a pair of Timberland boots, but the only place in the Triangle area that sold them was a hunting shop. So instead of the 6-inch construction boots, I got a taller, brown hunting version. That place didn't start selling the construction Tims until years later. Well, let's talk about getting haircuts. When we were 15, Zach and I started getting our staple white boy Caesar with different variations of a fade on the sides and back. Because we lived in Durham, finding a barber that could pull off the quaff of our dreams was next to impossible. We tried going to Sharper Image Salon where our moms both got their hair done, but the style we wanted was a bit out of their wheelhouse. We tried going to a white barber, but the only ones we could find were old southern men with gray hair and strong accents who didn't understand our requests. When we described the fade, they'd say, you mean a high and tight. We'd say okay, but we'd end up with crew cuts on the side and backs of our heads. What we wanted was a white variation on a black hairstyle, something that would allow us to wave our hip-hop flags proudly. This was unheard of in the South when we were kids, so it was a chore to attain. And to today's generation white boy, you're welcome. We finally ended up in piano cuts on 15501 in Durham. It was a black barber shop, but we thought that maybe the name implied black and white, so we took a shot. Through trial and error, we found our barber, Tim, who still cuts Zach's hair to this day. Finding him made life a little easier, but Tim's inevitable tardiness and lack of organizational skills made our haircuts as irritating as they were satisfying. Once I moved to New York, I figured the increased popularity of my hairstyle, coupled with the amount of Hispanic males per capita, who mostly shared the same do, would make finding a barber super easy and convenient for me. I was wrong. Through a mutual friend, I was introduced to Dave, who was a fantastic barber. But much like Tim, Dave's talent was often overshadowed by his lack of reliability. When he was present, I received consistently near-perfect haircuts. But often he would tell me he would be at the shop in five minutes and wouldn't arrive for two and a half hours. Sometimes he'd be on the way and would never show up. I should have just left, right? Well, yes, but as a budding rapper, I was hyper-image conscious. My hairline was also receding, never really looked the way I wanted it to, and I was trying my best to hide it. So when I needed a haircut, I fucking needed a haircut. How could I get a record deal if my hair didn't look right? When it was cut well, I felt like one of my physical obstacles was temporarily not an issue. But Dave was undependable, and to boot, he worked in a shop on 145th Street uptown. That meant I had to travel 30 minutes from work to get there and close to two hours to get back home to Brooklyn. Getting a haircut was the bane of my existence. It was critical for me and took up entire nights. But it wasn't simply the haircuts that kept me going back to Dave. My vanity wasn't that severe. Like many New Yorkers, Dave knew people in the music industry and they often hung out in the shop where he worked. And for someone as thirsty as I was to get signed, I looked at it like an inn. It wasn't a rarity to see Keith Murray, Michael Bivens, or Jim Jones getting a shape up, or simply hanging out in the back drinking Hennessy. Dave even cut Puff Daddy's hair for a Vibe magazine shoot once. I was always a little giddy to see someone famous in the shop. It made me feel like I was getting closer and that these untouchable people were accessible. 
There was one industry person in particular I always hoped to cross paths with. His name was Jeff Sledge and he was Dave's client. When I interned at Jive Records in the late 90s, Jeff was an A&R. I never actually had as much as one conversation with him. In fact, the only time we ever interacted was when I'd run across the street to Johnny's Luncheonette to get him lunch. He always ordered a cheeseburger with barbecue sauce and onion rings on top. It must have been the lunch of champions because Jeff was now the senior VP of A&R, and I knew that he could sign me if I could just have an actual conversation with him. I started to envision the scenario somewhat religiously as though my subconscious was attempting to think it into existence. I would also imagine how our barbershop connection would only add to my story. From the beginning, Dave heard that I was a rapper, but acted like he doubted my abilities. I assumed that his apprehension was a result of how I appeared when I came to get my hair cut. I'd usually see him fresh off a day at work where I wore khakis, polo shirts, and brown shoes almost every day. Not quite the look of a rap star, but for me to have to run home to Brooklyn to change my outfit or bring an extra bag of clothing to work so that I'd look the part just seemed annoying and unnecessary. As it turned out, it would have made all the difference. After letting Dave listen to my demo, he told me I was dope, but certainly didn't act as if he thought I was the next big thing. He wasn't sold on what's-his-name and it was Josh's job to change his mind. After a few consecutive trips to the barbershop where one of the newer barbers was rapping out loud to a CD filled with mostly instrumentals of songs off the games album, I decided it was time for me to invade his space and take any and all of his fans away. I waited for a Friday evening to go for my bi-monthly cut and made sure to dress in my best rapper costume. Once the barber, Dutch, started rapping, I quietly whispered to Dave, Man, I'd eat that dude alive. Oh yeah, Dave said with a smile, thinking the white boy was about to embarrass himself. I'll set it up right now. You ready? Yeah, fuck it, I'm ready, I said, smiling. Yo, Dutch, Dave shouted over the music. My man right here said he would eat you alive. Oh shit, I thought in sheer embarrassment. This dude is gonna get me shot in here. I had to cover my ass. Oh stop, no I didn't, Dave, stop playing. You didn't just tell me you'd eat him alive, Dave said. No, I didn't. I succeeded in convincing the room that it was just Dave being his jovial self, but instinctively a switch was flipped in my brain. But I mean, I would though. Ooh, the entire packed barbershop said in unison, and murmur after murmur was thrown out into the air. A word, Dutch said while still cutting hair and smiling sinisterly. Oh shit, Eminem, another barber named Marlon said. You think you could take my man, yo? I don't know, man. I guess we'll have to find out, I said, smiling. The entire shop was in a frenzy, and I felt like I'd been thrust into a co-starring role in a low-budget 80s hip-hop movie. Dave finished up his work as I prepared for battle. I had a fresh verse on deck that I had just written. It was perfect for a situation like this and ended with crafty lines that were ripped straight from the headlines, even comparing my opponent to the recently denounced governor of New Jersey who had stepped down due to controversy. I knew it was sure to make the onlookers go nuts at the sheer relevance of my lyrics. Dutch did a verse that I had heard him say a few weeks prior. It was okay, nothing spectacular, but everybody present, who obviously couldn't rap as well as Dutch, were thoroughly impressed. Then it was my turn. As I started my verse, I could feel all eyes staring at me, including the older customers who were there for a haircut and not for a rap show. Rapping was what I did best, and I rarely got the opportunity to spit one of my verses in a battle-like scenario, especially for a bunch of naysayers. My arrogant lyrics represented every shred of confidence that existed in my life, and I couldn't wait until it was my turn to show what I was made of. 
As I got into the meat and potatoes of the verse, I unleashed a lyrical fury that would solidify my reputation as a rapper in that shop. From that day forward, every barber, including Dave, were among my biggest fans, regardless of what I was wearing. When the barbershop lost its lease, Dave and a few of the other barbers moved to a smaller location across the street, and the rest of us followed like ratty-haired children to the Pied Piper. One night after a long overdue trip to the gym, I headed uptown for a haircut to accommodate Davey come lately schedule. Wearing an old Duke t-shirt, double XL gray sweatpants, and some worn basketball shoes that probably should have been in the trash can years earlier, I got a surprise that I was unprepared for. Jeff from Jive showed up at the shop to get his haircut right after mine. Damn it, I thought to myself, dress for this. I knew that I couldn't let him focus on me and what I was wearing if I ever hoped to be taken seriously in a more professional encounter. I understood that within the music industry, you only get one chance to make a first impression, and seeing me sweaty, unshaven, and in workout clothes would never give off the star vibe that I thought was important in the eyes of a record label executive. Man, I hope Dave doesn't introduce me. Yo, Jeff, this is my boy Josh. He's an artist out of NC. Dave probably thought he was doing the right thing by me, most people don't understand the small and equal parts stupid and important details that surround an artist and how their image is presented, but I did. Ideally, he would have found a way to make eye contact with me to see if I was ready to be introduced. Ideally, he would have said, yo Jeff, this is my boy what's his name, rather than Josh. I didn't expect others to be as calculated as Rue and I always were, and though I appreciated Dave's effort, I felt like fate had just dealt me a blow that would probably be impossible to come back from. After a few more minutes of Dave's small gray Andis brand T-Edgers lining up my hairline perfectly, I left the barbershop for my long ride back to Brooklyn with enough on my mind to keep me overanalyzing and stressing out for hours to come. That night in bed, I kept running it over in my head. Damn it, why do you have to call me Josh? And why did Jeff have to see me like that? The following week, we got the video back after months of arguing with Eric about specific edits. Overall, Rue and I liked the finished product, but I don't think either of us loved it. There were good things about it, but I couldn't get past the stereotypical rap images and the fact that some of my on-screen performance appeared uncomfortable, much like Biggie Smalls in his first video. The problem for me, though, was that I had no prospects for a second, third, or tenth video like Big did. This was my only shot, and I wasn't sure I had nailed it. I only hoped that anyone seeing the video wouldn't view it as harshly as I did. The video was decent and free, and beggars really couldn't be choosers. A few weeks later, I was back in the barbershop getting my wig re-seasored and my lines tightened up, and Dave had a brilliant idea. I knew it was brilliant because I had been subliminally planting it in his head for months. Yo, would you mind if I gave your music to Jeff? He asked. Would I mind? Hell no, I wouldn't mind. Let me bring you a demo packet, though. Nah, I don't want to get all complicated. I just want to give him the mixtape you gave me so it could be on some like, yo, check my man out. I got the joint right here. Better yet, maybe I'll just see if he wants to meet with you. Are you serious? Dave, that's what we want, man. If you could set that up, I'd be so grateful. I'll hook it up, no problem, he said. Just do me one favor, I said. When you're referring to me, say what's his name. Dave looked at me like I had replied in another language. I'm saying, don't be like my man Josh. Make sure you call me what's his name. Go ahead with that, man, Dave said while waving me off. Nah, man, it's serious. You gotta call me what's his name. Whatever, Josh. Excuse me, what's his name, Dave said laughing. Four days later, Dave had good news. Yo, can y'all be a jive Friday at 3 p.m.? 
Hell yeah, we can, I told him without even consulting with Rue first. Tell him we'll be there. That night, I planned my outfit perfectly. Jeans, new black t-shirt from Digital Gravel, matching limited edition RBK sneakers from Pulse, my all-black Carolina Panthers fitted cap because I wouldn't have a fresh haircut for the occasion, and my brand new $600 Louis Vuitton shades that would go down in history as the dumbest expensive purchase of my adult life, especially when I lost them a few months later. When we arrived the next day, we waited out in the small lobby of the ninth floor of Jai for Jeff to get us. I wanted to wear my gaudy shades into the meeting, but I wasn't sure if it looked like I was trying too hard. While in the lobby, I put them on and wear them for five minutes, then take them off, then put them back on again. By the time the receptionist came around the desk to lead us back to Jeff's office, the shades were off and hung on the front collar of my shirt so that they were at least visible. As we walked over the threshold of the door of the A&R department, everything was familiar. The closed office doors, the arrangement of the cubicles, even the smell. With a few more steps and a right turn, we were inside the office of the highest executive on the A&R food chain. And as our eyes met, Jeff gave me that look that read, Oh, you? He likely knew that I was one of Dave's clients, he just didn't know which one. I had a feeling like this meeting was not going to go our way. Sitting there making small talk with Jeff, I kept thinking about how I wish I had a fresh haircut, how I wasn't sure if wearing a fitted hat looked cool anymore, and that I couldn't let him see my hair. I kept questioning whether or not I should have worn my shades in the meeting, but I also hoped he would notice the LV symbol on the side. I thought about the what's-his-name tattoo I had recently gotten on the inside of my right bicep and how I wanted him to see it. I kept resting my right hand atop my head and quickly shaking my arm so that the tattoo would be exposed. I wanted Jeff to see that I was a star, not like his first impression. As we got into it, Rue took the lead just as we had planned. He told Jeff what we had been doing and what we had accomplished with the mixtapes and singles. Dave told me y'all had some shit, Jeff said, showing only moderate interest. Before we get into the music, why don't we start with the video, Rue told him. Who shot this for y'all? Some of your boys? Jeff said as he took the DVD from Rue and popped it into his DVD player. It sounded like perhaps he assumed we had a low-budget visual. Nah, man, Rue said laughing, though I could tell he was as offended as I was. As the video played, Jeff showed no signs of enthusiasm other than nodding his head to the music. So what's up, y'all wanna play me some stuff? He listened to the first 60 seconds or so of two songs, then an entire third song. Yeah, I liked that last one. The first two in the video joint were cool. So what y'all got going on? Rue went into his best sales pitch, telling Jeff not only what we had been doing, but also what we were planning on doing. Some of it was far-fetched, like renting billboards in North Carolina, something we had never discussed. Here and there, Jeff would say things to break the uncomfortable silence like, Oh, okay, or, ah, I got you. But I wasn't buying it, and I needed reassurance that this wasn't a huge waste of time. After an hour and a half in Jeff's office talking about our music and the up-and-coming acts on Jive, Jeff seemed like he knew something was there, but that maybe he hadn't quite gotten it yet. Let me hold on to this CD for about a week and let me think on it, Jeff said. I wondered if he was just being nice or if he really wanted to think about what he had just heard. Though it was possibly the biggest meeting of our lives, neither of us were elated about the outcome. You think he was for real? I asked. I don't know, man, Rue said without ever looking up at me. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I guess it was good he talked to us for over an hour, right? He could have just thrown us out after a few minutes. Radio silence. We need to do something, Bruce said. Okay, like what? I said. 
I don't know. But we need to do something that will make some noise. We're doing all this stuff and we still ain't where we need to be. That was true, but we'd also been doing what we believed to be the right things. Fuck, man! Rue yelled. I'm fucking tired of this shit! I was used to letdowns, but Rue was feeling extra defeated. Nah, man, this is fucking bullshit! I'm tired of fucking with these dudes and not blowing them away! We need to blow them away! I couldn't have agreed more, but what else were we supposed to do? We gotta work harder, yo! We gotta do everything in our power to make this shit happen, Rue said. Dog, we've been working our asses off. What the hell else could we possibly be doing? I don't know, man, but we can't go on like this! Even though I had seen Rue in despair, toying with going home and even shedding tears, I had never seen him this frustrated with music before. The feelings he had were similar to mine, except my answer was never, maybe I'm not working hard enough. For the past three years, we had done everything there was to do, and everything we didn't do wasn't worth doing in the first place, at least in my opinion. The only thing we could do now was hope that the meeting went better than we thought. Six days later, Rue began calling Jeff in hopes of getting some inspiring news, but couldn't get through. The next day, same thing. Another full business week went by until finally he was able to get Jeff on the phone. I'm gonna have to pass, Jeff told him. Rue persisted and asked why. Jeff gave Rue no detail but cut to the chase. Let me ask you something. You honestly think he's a star? I do, Rue reassured him. I respect you for believing in your artist, Jeff said. You can't front on the talent though, Rue replied. No, I can't. You're just gonna have to sell me on him being a star. To me, that meant we were out of options, but for Rue, it was an open-ended invitation and another opportunity to prove him wrong. And he had no problem proving someone wrong, or at least trying to. His tenacity came from his survival. Rue's childhood was challenging. He witnessed and went through things that he shouldn't have, and it made him a better, tougher person. When things didn't go his way, he tried to figure out a different way. That wasn't my approach. I dealt with some less than happy experiences as a kid, but they just made me want to avoid them in the future. When I heard bad news, I figured the sky was falling and I should run for cover. This dichotomy in our mindsets, for the most part, made for a good balance in our relationship. Once again, it was clear that I was just a talented rapper. It was as if every A&R in the history of the music industry was conspiring against me. I was good, just not good enough to sign. They said the same thing about Jay-Z. I didn't know what I was missing, but I knew I had worked extra hard for years to try and find it. What was more frustrating is that no one seemed to be able to tell us what it was, only that I didn't possess it. I didn't know how much longer I could stomach chasing something that no one, including myself, could define to get me to a mythical destination that I assumed would make everything right.